Welcome. This is the uh, second of the 4X, so AT2. This is the uh, anatomy of the, <coughs> the thoracic wall. We've seen how a significant part of the thorax is uh, covered or overlapped by uh, the muscles of the upper limb, some of which we've considered in the podcast on the pectoral girdle about a year ago, if you want to have a look at that. And we understand the nature and the complexity of thoracochromial movement with the upper limb, which I've extensively discussed. If you wish to review this once again, including muscles like the trapezius and the pectoralis major, <coughs> you can review the relevant upper limb podcast. Of course, abdominal muscles overlap the lower thoracic cage, and the area is, of course, innervated by the thoracic spinal nerves, which we'll discuss a little bit later, supplying the muscles and sending out cutaneous branches out to the outlying skin. Of course, the second and sometimes the third thoracic nerves do innervate the upper limb as the variants <coughs> of the intercostobrachial so-called nerves, and that's part of the neural innovation of the developing upper limb bud, which I've also previously discussed. Now, we see, of course, here the remnants of the pectoralis major attached to the sternal margin, as well as the upper six costal cartilages, and it's pierced <coughs> by the anterior um, T2 to T5 nerves, there's no anterior branch of T1, and these run along with the anterior branches of the intercostal arteries, remembering that the second to the fourth are the so-called mammary branches. We see also the upper rectus abdominis muscle attached to the xiphoid and the fifth to the seventh costal cartilages and the pectoralis minor, which is attached, as we know, to the third to the fifth ribs that can be slightly prefixed <coughs> or slightly postfixed. And more laterally is the serratus anterior, which we've discussed before, attached to the angles of the upper ribs in digitation and the lower four interdigitating with the upper four slips of the external oblique muscle also arising from the lower eight ribs. And just in front of the anterior axillary line between these two major slips are the lateral cutaneous branches of the intercostal nerves. At the back, the muscles removed already uh, in our dissection or a kind of mock dissection in this series of podcasts are the trapezius, the rhomboids and the latissimus dorsi. <coughs> Of course, we need to look at the thoracic skeleton as well, and we see the 12 thoracic vertebrae ahead of our discussion on the vertebrae themselves, which will actually appear next year after the abdomen and pelvis, and which will be discussed along with the spinal cord. In lieu of this much later discussion, we can at least look at the articulation between the ribs and the vertebrae. And if we look at the thoracic joints as they apply here to the ribs, I'd advise really taking out a typical thoracic vertebra and a typical rib to follow along and to confirm the structures and features which I'll mention. In the next podcast, we'll be going through the osteology of this, but we'll be just discussing the nature of these joints. <coughs> I've got a bad cold today, so I apologise. Uh, 
ribs articulate, of course, by their heads, and so that's the costovertebral joint, and also by their tubercles, that's the costotransverse joints. And, of course, the ribs join their costal cartilages as costochondral joints. So please use these terms, particularly in your exams and in discussion. The upper seven ribs, of course, directly articulating with the sternum at the sternocostal joints, the next three with each other as interchondral joints, and the last two being free, the so-called floating ribs. And we also see the symphyseal manubrio-sternal joint and the symphyseal sternosifisternal joint. And remember, a symphysis is a fibrocartilaginous fusion between bones, but it's specifically a midline secondary cartilaginous joint, which is slightly movable, what is called amphiarthrotic. And the joints of the vertebrae are similarly amphiarthrotic in this way. <coughs> now let's begin by having a look at the head of a rib, and you can see in the typical rib two articular facets that slope away from one another, and these have a correlative demi-facet on the vertebra, the lower rib facet articulating with the costal facet of its own vertebra and the upper facet with the vertebra above. So remember, its own vertebra and the one above. That's how it articulates. And that little ridge between these two facets has a connection which is called the intra-articular ligament with the intervertebral disc attached there for added security. The so-called triradiate or radiate ligament then runs in front of this and it has three bands like the spread of fingers, the upper band not surprisingly going to the vertebra above, the lower band to the vertebra below and the central band running deep to the anterior longitudinal ligament and blending with its fellow on the other side as well as with the intervertebral disc, so reasonably easy to remember. The relevance of this triradiate component is that it's the really the embryological equivalent of the developing anterior arch of the atlas, and it's called in, in many texts the hypochordal bone. The first rib also articulates only with T1, and of course not with the cervical vertebra C7, and the last two incomplete or free-floating ribs only articulate with their corresponding vertebrae. So that this triradiate ligament is only appearing at those levels as a double-headed and not a triple-headed structure for obvious reasons. They don't communicate with the vertebra above or below. I can't claim any expertise here except to say that this developmental structure is actually important in the development of the basi occiput and the closure of the craniovertebral junction the formation of the so-called Arnold Chiari malformations, or what's called basi-occipital dysgenesis, and a, a particular type of hydrocephalus. And this area is actually uh, quite complicated, as the antero-posterior, so-called rostrocaudal polarity of the embryo is a very early determinant, and it has the caudal somites and forms the vertebrae and its supports. Cranially, you've got the precaudal mesoderm up to the otic vesicle with the job of forming the bones and muscles of the head and face, uh, which as such doesn't develop somites. So this differentiation is actually Hox gene controlled. And if anyone's interested in this, they can contact my PA Margaret on megando, M-E-G-A-N-D-O 57 at yahoo.com and I'm happy to create a podcast on that 
as needed if people want to know a little bit more about the embryology of the um, uh, of the uh, head and uh, neck, or at least one of the components of it. Um, we will be doing an embryology series, but I'm not intending to do an embryology series until about 2025. The Hox gene uh, actually encodes transcription factors concerned really with the body plan, with a highly conserved so-called homeobox domain across mammalian species, which some of you may have heard about. Now, we need to briefly look at these joints. We're going to be talking, in effect, about costotransverse joints, costochondral, interchondral, sternocostal, manubriosternal, ziphysternal. Just get all of those in your mind. They're all a little distinct. If you look at the tubicle of each rib, you'll see a medial and a lateral facet. We're going back to the rib so that the medial one articulates with the facet that is right on the tip of the transverse process. And these are quite curved in the upper part of the chest, and they're a bit more flattened in the lower half of the chest. The lateral facet is ligamentous, so it's often called a lateral costotransverse ligament, because these articular surfaces are so narrow, like the sternoclavicular joint for that matter, or the acromioclavicular joint, that the strength and the stability is not reliant on the articular surfaces, but it's reliant on the ligaments that support the entire structure. Uh, there's an additional costotransverse ligament, and that actually fills in that space between the neck of the rib that's running backwards and the tip of the vertebral transverse process. If you attach a rib to its transverse process, you'll see there's a little space there between the tubicle and the head, the neck area, and that's filled in by this so-called um, additional costotransverse um, ligament. And in effect, it's a plate of ligamentous tissue that fills that space behind the tubicle and the transverse process of the vertebra. And the area runs up also as what we can call a superior costotransverse ligament, but that runs up from that point to the transverse process, actually down the surface of the transverse process, of the vertebra above. So one holds the rib neck to its own transverse process and the other fills in that space up to the next transverse process. And these can be thought of then as kind of fill-in stability ligaments. That superior costotransverse ligament actually is split, if we want to be a bit more complicated about it, with an anterior lamina uh, which rides actually directly against the intercostal membrane and a posterior lamina, which is homologous, really, with the external intercostal muscle, kind of like a degenerative, degenerative bit of that. So in summary, just to, to summarise this, we see that the costotransverse joint is largely ligamentous. There's a direct one between the tubicle and the tip of the vertebral transverse process, a lateral one that fills that space behind the tubicle between the neck of the rib and its own transverse process, and a superior one, which fills this space to the transverse process of the vertebra above to stabilise the rib. And so that's the basic structure of the costotransverse joint and ligaments. The costochondral joints we mentioned briefly, they're all primary cartilaginous joints as part of an unossified anterior part of the rib, but relatively immobile. The interchondral joints are synovial. The sternocostal joints are 
sternocondyl, more correctly, with, as I've said, the first manubriocostal as a primary cartilaginous joint. And that fixation actually provides a little bit of clavicular stability. There's a, a secondary assistance, really, to the platform of thoracocranial articulation in the way I've already defined in a previous podcast. The rest of these joints to the sternum, of course, are all synovial, where the second, where the joint is separated between the manubrium and uh, the sternal body. The manubriosternal joint is symphysial, as I've already said, with a fibrocartilaginous disc, which allows some mobility. And of course, that's the manubriosternal angle, which if transected across the chest, goes to the bottom of the T4-5 joint. We often ask, what's going at that level, at that manubriosternal angle? Uh, and this is of importance in a cross-sectional axial CT scan. Such a common question, what lies at that level? Uh, well, we know that we see the arch of the aorta, which is cut across twice in the CT scan. We see the ascending and descending part of the aorta. We're at the level of the tracheal bifurcation, maybe slightly above the dichotomization of the pulmonary artery. We're at the level of the ligamentum arteriosum, that's the old obliterated ductus arteriosus, bringing oxygenated blood in the fetus to the distal aorta. Running under that is the recurrent laryngeal nerve on the left side, which we've spoken about in other podcasts. If you want to review that anatomy, you can do so in our Head and Neck podcast to see a little about its anatomy, embryology and significance. It's in AHN2 on the uh, viscera of the neck. And here we've discussed the difference in the formation of the fourth aortic arch and the sixth aortic arch in the formation of an aberrant takeoff of the left subclavian artery that runs normally behind the, well, abnormally behind the esophagus, the so-called arterial Lusoria. So in this variation, the left subclavian artery, um, uh, pardon me, the right subclavian artery takes off uh, distally and it runs behind the esophagus, uh, the so-called arteria lusoria. And I mention this as it's seen on the angiographic phase of a chest CT. Uh, it, it is associated with a non-recurrent left inferior, as it's called, laryngeal nerve. And that situation, of course, can't occur on the right side because of the embryologic development of that part of the aorta. The fourth arch, the sixth arch forming the pulmonary artery, the fifth arch regressing, and this abnormal uh, right subclavian artery. Also at this level, that's the manubriosternal level, the thoracic duct is where it typically runs from right to the left side behind the aorta. And we also importantly see at this level the right-sided azygos vein running forward and entering into the superior vena cava. So one of the common questions that you can be asked in your, <coughs> in your vivus and orals is what goes on at that manubriosternal angle, the so-called angle of Louis, as it's called. And if you were to put a bandsaw across someone, you'd see the thoracic vertebral level and all of these different things occurring. It was of limited value when I started studying anatomy. It became more valuable when people were looking at axial CAT scans to see, for example, various tumours that might be infiltrating up at this particular level. 
So to come back to the other structure, as I've said, which occurs at this level, is the right side of the azygos vein running forward and entering into the SVC. Now, we'll discuss the azygos vein uh, in another podcast, but briefly we can mention some interesting things about this, which go beyond just the simple anatomy list that I've created for you of what occurs at this level. Uh, it has important embryological considerations, uh, because the azygos arises from the so-called supracardinal veins, with the left-sided system in the chest becoming the accessory hemiazygos system, and the superior vena cava forms then from the common and anterior cardinal veins. Now, actually, for those with interest here, the left anterior cardinal vein loses its connection with the left common cardinal vein, and on the left, it persists as a short segment, which is called the left superior intercostal vein. And that vein, therefore, enters the, le- the, the left superior intercostal vein and the right superior intercostal vein, which are both draining the first and second intercostal spaces, have different uh, entry points. They are tributaries of different veins. So on the left, the left superior intercostal vein typically enters the left brachiocephalic vein, some people call that the innominate vein, but on the right, of course, it drains into the azygos vein, and this is because of the embryological difference. I'll come back onto that in a second. The left common cardinal vein persists as a very short segment, which actually forms the coronary sinus venosus, and the superior vena cava itself is finally formed really by the junction of the right common cardinal vein and the proximal portion of the right anterior cardinal vein. We'll come into that in greater detail when we consider the superior vena cava in the upper mediastinum. Anyway, so why should we care about any of this? Well, I've created a a sort of list of things that happens on the CAT scan, if you're to look at it axially, all the things I mentioned before. But if we divide the azygos vein as it runs into the superior vena cava, we're doing that at surgery, you can directly expose the esophagus which lies behind it. But that's actually above the region of the right hilum of the lung. And that can be useful in an esophageal cancer or even in a lung cancer which can infiltrate that region. But ligation of the azygos is not well advised since a more extensive cancer that might be infiltrating mediastinal structures, either of the esophagus or the lung, can ultimately end up infiltrating the superior vena cava. That's normally treated as an emergency by radiotherapy. But it's going to be less effective in reducing raised intracranial pressure because that's the venous drainage of the brain through the superior vena cava there if the azygos vein has already been ligated. Uh, It's getting a little technical, but a review of a lung cancer showing encroachment here essentially makes the cancer inoperable. And I want you to think really at all times what you're seeing and dissecting, why it actually might matter, and also where it might hold some clinical relevance. What is the azygos vein doing there, draining the right chest, running forwards into the superior vena cava over the top of the hilum of the right lung directly behind it lies the esophagus. And when we come to it later in this podcast series, the differences in the embryology of this region actually defines the differences in the venous drainage of the left and right brachiocephalic, or so-called innominate veins, and of the left and right chest. It actually primarily explains not only how 
the superior vena cava develops, but also how the inferior vena cava and the iliac venous system develop, and why there are differential tributaries between the right and left systems above and below the chest. And again, I'm trying to say in the way that we spoke about upper and lower limb homology, that there is a an homological development, a similar embryological development of the um, uh, superior vena cava and the inferior vena cava as well, which explains why the tributaries of some of these right-sided veins and left-sided veins are different. I'll go through this again, but I'll explain briefly what I'm saying here uh, at the moment, why there are differential tributaries between the right and left systems and why we have such a long left brachiocephalic vein or when we come to examine it in the abdomen or dissect it in the abdomen, why we've got such a long left renal vein. Well, I wasn't going to cover it, but let's do so now and, and we can return to it in other podcasts. We note in brief that the left brachiocephalic vein, if you look at it, runs all the way across the chest to join the right side in the formation of the superior vena cava at around about the second intercostal space. We notice the same thing when we'll come to assess the left renal vein, which runs all the way across the abdomen in the prevertebral space to join the inferior vena cava. And we see it differentially also in the difference between the left and the right common iliac venous system. The left common iliac vein is actually crossed by the right common iliac artery. There's some asymmetry there. And this is all due to the fact that there is in the fetus a left-sided superior vena cava and a left-sided inferior vena cava, and both of which regress on the left side. So these coalesce in the chest around the left brachiocephalic vein, forming the residual left-sided accessory hemiazygos system. And below the diaphragm, all of this left inferior vena cava regresses and coalesces around the left renal vein, and it forms the hemiazygos system on the left side below the diaphragm. Of course, the venous tributaries of the left brachiocephalic vein therefore differ from the right. Both receive the vertebral vein, but on the left, the left receives stout thymic veins which enter the left brachiocephalic, as do a leash of small but very significant inferior thyroid veins. And both of these aspects are important, obviously, in thymectomy and in thyroidectomy, for example. By the way, the meaning of azygos is, of course, non-zygote. Zygote really meaning a couple or a twin, so untwinned or unpaired. That's what azygos means. Um, when we look at the left renal vein, I won't go into that e in great detail either, but the left renal vein runs all the way across um, to join the inferior cava. So therefore, the tributaries of the left renal vein are different to those of the right renal vein. And they, of course, include the left gonadal vein, whether that's ovarian or testicular, and the left suprarenal vein. Of course, the right suprarenal vein drains into the cava. The right gonadal vein drains into the cava. And this explains the differences between them, as well as, I've said, the asymmetry of the junction of the left and right common iliac veins and why the right common iliac vein is crossed by the left common iliac artery. To come back to the chest, if we get on to the ziphysternal joint after this diversion, this too is symphysile, it has a fibrocartilaginous disc that typically ossifies. So we need to continue after this diversion, I suppose, with the thoracic musculature.
I hope all of that's clear, but it's important that it explains why there are differences and we can remember these differences between the left, in this case we're talking about the chest, the left brachiocephalic vein and the right and why they've got different tributaries. Let's get on to the thoracic musculature. As I've already stated, the external embryological layers correspond in the chest, abdomen and neck, but included in this group in the chest are also two posterior serrate muscles, the superior and inferior. They're formally divided in front of the erector spiny muscle at the back end of a posterolateral thoracotomy, and they're also part of formal correct closure of a thoracotomy. The innermost layer of muscles is often collectively referred to as the transversus thoracis group, but it actually includes the transversus thoracis proper, the innermost intercostals, and the so-called subcostals. So let's get into these in a little bit more detail. Coming to that outer layer, we've already considered embryologically the external intercostal and its homology, particularly to the external um, uh, oblique and to the scalenus posterior. In this outer layer, we've also got, as I've said in the chest, the posterior serrates. And these have migrated posteriorly in their development. So they're posteriorly located muscles, but they're innervated by anterior thoracic rami. And they're easy to remember because they both arise from the spinous processes of four thoracic vertebrae, two in the thorax and two beyond it. So in this case, C6 and 7, or in the inferior case, L1 and 2, and they insert by running up and out or down and out to the rib angles. They're very shiny, sort of almost tenderness little muscles. And in the case of the serratus posterior superior, it's inserted on top of splenius to about the second to the fifth ribs. And in the case of the serratus posterior inferior, it's on top of the latissimus dorsi and it's inserted to the lower four ribs. The serratus posterior superior actually has the dorsal scapular nerve running on it that supplies or innervates the rhomboids and levator scapulae. And it's covered by the levator scapulae and the rhomboids, so that makes sense. And this serratus posterior superior is, of course, one of the boundaries of the so-called superior lumbar triangle. That can be a very rare site of hernia that's usually seen in patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. When I say usual, it's a pretty uncommon hernia. And for those interested, it's also known as the triangle of grinfeld Schaft, and it's bounded medially uh, by the quadratus lumborum muscle, which is just that muscle that's squeezed between the iliac crest and the 12th rib filling in that space. And it's at the upper end of the triangle is the body of the 12th rib, and laterally is really the internal oblique. The floor of this uh, is only really transversalis fascia, so uh, it's a natural point uh, of weakness. Now, in this layer, we have the external intercostals, and if you look at a rib, the external intercostal muscle passes downwards from the sharp section of the rib above to the smooth rounded corner edge of the rib below. If you've got an articulated skeleton, it's even easier to pick this up. And so therefore the muscle moves downwards and forwards. If you place your palm on the front of the chest with your fingers pointing downwards towards the umbilicus, that's the direction of the external intercostal. Now, 
this is all muscle from the costotransverse joint in the manner I've described it at the back right out to the costochondral junction. That's all muscle. And from there on medially, it becomes a membrane which you can call the anterior intercostal membrane. So the tissue between the costal cartilages then is all membranous. Now, once you remember that, um, putting your hand on the front of the, um, of the uh, chest in that way in an articulated skeleton, the rest is easy. The internal intercostal muscle and membrane is the reverse. The fibres run at right angles to its external fellow. You can move your hand across the chest accordingly or put one hand at right angles to the other so that the fibres run downwards and backwards and the muscle extends differently as muscle into the side of the sternum, right to the edge of the sternum, and it's replaced by a membrane, the posterior intercostal membrane, from about the angle of the rib or sometimes a little bit more posteriorly. So one is muscle all the way from the back to the costal cartilages and then the anterior intercostal membrane and the other is muscle from the side of the sternum round to about the angle of the ribs and then the posterior intercostal membrane. Very simple. Um, of the transversus thoracis, one muscle, uh, I think... Uh, runs to the side, and that is the innermost intercostals. One runs to the back, which is the subcostals, and one's at the front, which is the transversus thoracis proper, what I'll call the transversus thoracis proper. Now, as I've said, the subcostals, spanning a few intercostal spaces, like a kind of flying buttress on a church, are best developed inferiorly and laterally for the reasons I've already mentioned. And the innermost intercostals, which some people call the intercostals interni, also cross more than one space, but they're seen laterally, and they widen the further down you get. The transversus thoracis, what I'm calling the transversus thoracis proper, is only then seen on the back of the sternum, if you flip that back, and you run... Um, like the breast on the outside, this runs really from the second to the sixth ribs. And it runs out and laterally. It protects the internal thoracic artery, what we formerly called the internal mammary artery. And the transversus thoracis proper in the past, I think you'll see some books referring to it in the past as the sternocostalis muscle. It's not a bad term. The muscle is important because it's a little tedious when the in internal thoracic artery is harvested for a coronary artery bypass graft, which it increasingly is. Actually, in a multinational study, which was reported last year, of over 10,000 cases uh, comparing radial artery, in, uh, internal thoracic artery, and saphenous vein bypass grafting, the radial artery bypass graft appeared on top in terms of perioperative mortality over a seven-year follow-up. But there's an increasing use of arteries rather than reversed saphenous vein bypass grafting. I can add one other external muscle we don't perhaps think about much, and that's the levator's costi. And these are evident on dissection of the back as 12 rather fan-shaped looking muscles coming up from the transverse process to the upper rib. The importance of these little muscles of accessory inspiration, they're really the only muscles of the region which you could consider as part of the external group 
that are innervated by the posterior primary rami sequentially. One, I think, may consider them as back muscles, a subject we won't be discussing until 2025 for those keeping these podcasts uh, and downloading them. And as a deep back muscle, we consider it, I think, more with the interspinals and the intertransversary muscles as minor back muscles, but more and on about the back for those of you who are patient for that. Now, we need to look next at the intercostal space. And like so many things from above downwards, as we know, it's vein artery nerve, vein artery nerve, V-A-N. We've already mentioned that a thoracocentesis is above the rib below. That's not always perfect in arterial avoidances. We'll see in a second. But also in a thoracotomy, we strip the periosteum off of the upper, not the lower rib, for the same reason that we know a strip the intercostal neurovascular bundle off. And to fill in that small point, even when you perform a thoracocentesis perfectly, you can still hit the little collateral branch of the posterior intercostal artery. And this is a small branch that normally runs uh, on the upper part of the rib below. And you, you get, usually, thank goodness, a very limited hemothorax. Even when you've done everything perfectly, uh, you can still get a problem because of that little collateral vessel. Now, we have to take a little time out, I think, to discuss the typical intercostal nerve. These mixed spinal nerves, uh, I'll consider in a moment, I'll give you a little bit of a a musical interlude, uh, otherwise we'll lose our attention span. Now, to the intercostal nerves, they are mixed spinal nerves. And uh, they represent the ventral rami of the 1st to the 11th thoracic spinal nerves. The 12th, or the subcostal, is modified, as is L1, which uh, could, as a thoraco-abdominal nerve, be considered, uh, we'll consider it later, as a modified intercostal pattern. As we know, T1 and T2 have contributory elements to the brachial plexus. The nerve lies in the intercostal space, deep to the internal intercostal membrane, in the subcostal groove, in front of the intercostals intime, very co- close to the parietal pleura. And as we know, it runs between the inner and innermost layers, wherever we are when we come to look at the thoracoabdominal nerves, Again, that's the same structure. Now, this nerve connects to the sympathetic ganglion by its rami communicantes. 
as the white ramus communicans that carries myelinated preganglionic nerve fibres, and then if it synapses there in that ganglion, it then is the non-myelinated postganglionic, so-called grey ramus communicans, and that then distributes sympathetic activity at the requisite level. This is, of course, sympathetic function, principally as a precapillary vasoconstrictor and for sweat gland stimulation, as well as in the formation of uh, the superficial mostly, but also the deep cardiac plexi, and of these much more anon in the relevant podcast. Before this white ramus is a usual little meningeal branch at the appropriate level. A large collateral branch is formed from the intercostal nerve and that's wholly concerned with the supply of the muscles of the relevant space along with the parietal pleura and periosteum. So it's a mixed nerve, although it has no cutaneous branches. And that arises near the angle supplying the intercostal muscles and then gives rise to the lateral cutaneous branch which comes off past the angle and that divides into a large anterior and posterior branch. The muscular branches innervate the intercostal, subcostal and transversus thoracis and serratus posterior muscles in the way we've outlined. The lateral has a large muscular branch about the mid-chest which can extend posteriorly and anteriorly and these loop together with separable muscular branches and they finish as the anterior cutaneous branch, which typically has medial and lateral twigs. In the upper six intercostal spaces, the arrangement is as expected, but in the lower spaces, the nerve tends to take a kind of wider arc with the intercostal vessels actually disposed inside this arc, so that disposition changes. So at the back of the space, the nerve crosses at the back of the artery, and at the front, it's in front of the uh, components of the um, internal thoracic artery. It's a little bit more superficial than you think. That's the relevant point. The anterior cutaneous branch, as we know, pierces the internal intercostal muscle and the external intercostal membrane. Posteriorly, the dorsal ramus pushes backwards, dividing into a lateral and a medial branch too, similarly to anteriorly, although there can be additional lateral cutaneous branches that come from that posterior ramus. And these individual twigs can also loop a bit anteriorly and connect with one another, or posteriorly and connect with one another. So that's the typical nerve, and you should look at an individual book and try and draw that particular nerve um, as it comes out from the spinal cord, joining with the sympathetic nervous system and the parable a paravertebral sympathetic ganglion connections in the sympathetic output, we remember, which comes from the thoracolumbar outflow. That's usually about T10 to L1. And these are derived in an axial section of the spinal cord between the sensory posterior horn, the cuneate gracile nucleus, and the anterior or motor horn. And the sympathetic cells reside in the so-called intermediolateral cell columns between these. What you should do is try and draw it. It's a very valuable exercise. We'll be producing, as I've said, a Vade Mechum books of this. There'll be one on the thorax, and it'll include the intercostal nerves, and they're going to come out hopefully um, late next year, and they'll include simple drawings of this type for you to practice, and this will reinforce how the anatomy uh, is known.
Now, there are atypical nerves here with only really the third to the sixth being as I've just described. The first nerve, of course, has no lateral or anterior cutaneous branches. The second, as we know, has the large lateral intercostobrachial nerves. And we know the dermatomal supply, such as it is, for example, with T10 uh, being the umbilicus. The anatomy is, of course, taken advantage of for an intercostal nerve block, uh, and um, uh, which we see used, of course, for incisional pain from thoracic surgery. It's used in post-herpetic neuralgia. It's used in rib fractures, breast surgery, some upper abdominal surgery. And so we need to know our anatomy of the intercostal nerves in the way I've described it, and we need to know it for intercostal blockade. Some useful landmarks, of course, include the inferior border of the scapula, which sits over the seventh rib, and, of course, the twelfth rib site. And you wish to provide, for example, coverage for abdominal surgery. The fifth to the twelfth are useful for breast surgery. The second to the sixth for thoracic incisions, generally one to two levels above and below the planned level of thoracotomy, should be sufficient for local anaesthetic support. Ultrasound guidance, of course, also allows a more medial approach than normal and reduces, I think, the risk of pneumothorax or inadvertent intravascular injection. The ultrasound probe is typically placed in a kind of sagittal plane, about four centimetres lateral to the spinous processes. The ribs can be visualised as a shadow, and the pleura and lung are then visualised anterior to the intercostal space. The needle can then be inserted in and out of a plane to the transducer and advanced until the tip is just below the inferior border of the rib. Uh, for those interested, obviously interpleural, or some people call it intrapleural blockade, um, injects local anaesthetic between the parietal and visceral pleura for an ipsilateral somatic block of multiple thoracic dermatomes with a probable spread into the sympathetic chains and the splanchnic nerves. So that's an alternative to individual intercostal nerve blockade where there's each time theoretically a risk of pneumothorax or haemothorax rather than the use of an intrapleural uh, blockade. If we remember, I mentioned splanchnic nerves in the sympathetic system. Just very briefly, a splanchnic nerve like the greater, lesser and least splanchnic nerves are all long preganglionic nerves with a distal or peripheral synapse. So these nerves appear a bit more like the parasympathetic nervous system, which usually synapses in the target viscous. The greater splanchnic nerve, which we'll get into in another podcast, is typically T5 to T9, the lesser T10 and T11, and the least T12, although these can vary. Um, the technique, as I mentioned briefly, of this so-called intrapleural or interpleural catheter, um, uh, interpleural blockade, rather, is to usually leave a pleural catheter in place, but these can uh, notoriously dislodge. There is a higher pneumothorax risk, I think, uh, with intrapleural um, uh, catheter use if it's continually being redone, and also there's a bit of a risk, theoretically, of local anaesthetic toxicity. So there are advantages and disadvantages of both techniques. So I don't really want to get into a war with anyone. Some people call it an intrapleural blockade because... It's based really on being between the visceral and parietal pleuris. Others have 
based their terminology more on embryologic considerations, but the plura is regarded as a single structure. So there might be somebody out there who's an anaesthetic uh, major who feels a little bit differently. Of the intercostal arteries, the upper two spaces have the superior intercostal artery, which is part of the costocervical trunk that arises from the second portion of the subclavian artery, and that grooves the front of the first rib behind the groove for the subclavian vein, with at the neck the sympathetic trunk, uh, medially, or more commonly in many people, the stellate ganglion, um, uh, which is uh, really the cervical and first thoracic trunks there. The T1 nerve root is laterally, and interposing is the so-called supreme intercostal vein, um, and that drains typically into the vertebral vein. The typical posterior intercostal arteries coming from the descending aorta, as I mentioned before, give off their small collateral branches. I've already mentioned these, and they run on the upper surface of the rib below at a, um, a lower and more vulnerable level, really, than the main arterial trunk. But fortunately, they don't cause, uh, usually cause very self-limited bleeding. There's an anterior intercostal artery, very similar, homologous to the anterior intercostal nerves. That's part of the internal thoracic artery and also part of the musculophrenic artery or its main branches. And these can form little anastomotic ring. Uh, usually there are no sort of anterior intercostals in the last two spaces. So this may be supported by branches of the musculophrenic artery. The rest of the internal thoracic artery continues on really between the ziphi sternum and the costal aspects of the diaphragm into the back of the rectus muscle in front of the rectus sheath of course is the superior epigastric artery so the termination of the internal thoracic is a superior epigastric and musculophrenic. Of the ITA that arises just to get into it opposite the thyrocervical trunk which we remember from the neck from the first part of the subclavian artery with the twin anterior intercostal branches terminating it around the sixth space, as we know, as the superbigastric artery and the musculophrenic, to reiterate. There's an isolated pericardiophrenic artery from the internal thoracic artery, uh, which covers the phrenic nerve across to the parietal pleura and pericardium, part of the diaphragm. And um, that pericardiophrenic artery is part of the embryological development of the phrenic nerve as it supplies the diaphragm, the mediastinal, bits of mediastinal parietal pleura, and the uh, bits of the relevant fibrous and parietal serous pericardium at that level. We'll go into it in later greater detail a bit in the next podcast about the embryology of the diaphragm. Uh, because this is really the nerve of the diaphragm, the phrenic nerve, and its artery, the pericardiophrenic artery. And this, of course, forms from the common origin of the uh, pericardium, fibrous pericardium, and the um, central tendon of the diaphragm, the formation of the so-called septum transversum. And that has tremendous clinical relevance, as I'll explain uh, in the next uh, podcast. So just briefly to mention that we need to know a little bit of embryology here to understand how the phrenic nerve as a mixed nerve uh, innovates in the way that it does. And I'll go into that in much more detail in the next, in the next podcast. 
Um, the artery itself, the internal thoracic aorta, has some perforating branches, as we know, to supply the breast, typically the second to the fourth, the so-called uh, uh, mammary or internal mammary arteries. And uh, there are additional branches from the internal thoracic, which are mediastinal, uh, thymic, and sternal. Um, there are also the 12 anterior intercostal branches, uh, as we mentioned, two to each of the top six intercostal spaces. And in any given space, the upper branch generally travels laterally along the bottom of the rib, anastomosing with bits of the corresponding posterior intercostal artery. The lower branch of the space anastomoses, as I've said, with the collateral branch of the posterior intercostal artery. In around about or 10% of cases or so, the terminal end of the internal thoracic artery is a trifurcation, not a bifurcation. There's an additional branch which supplies a bit of arterial blood to the inferior part of the sternum. Some people call that the xiphoid branch. And there can be a lateral costal branch in about 15 or 20% of cases. Um, of relevance uh, for bypass grafting, the internal thoracic artery can arise sometimes from the distal subclavian artery rather than the proximal portion. Uh, it may also have a common origin with branches of the thyrocervical trunk and, as I've said, may give off a third terminal xiphoid branch. Of the veins, we need to mention those. The intercostal veins include a single posterior intercostal and usually a double anterior intercostal vein. The anterior drainage is actually into the musculophrenic vein and the internal thoracic vein with a lot of irregularity posteriorly. The lower eight spaces typically draining into the azygos and on the left into the accessory hemiazygos, even sometimes down into the hemiazygos below the diaphragm. The unusual thing is, of course, the first space which is drained by a supreme intercostal vein, and that typically drains into the vertebral onto the right and on the left into the brachiocephalic, for the reasons I've mentioned earlier. On the left, the second and third spaces, sometimes the fourth space, they drain into a formal left superior intercostal vein, and such draining on the right goes into the azygos. On the left, it typically has a very long course, and you see it when you open the chest in a cadaver, you'll see it in real life as well, and it's a long vein, typically running across between the phrenic nerve in front and the vagus nerve behind, and it runs into the left brachiocephalic vein. In the cadaver, you'll see this landmark vein running very high up on opening the chest. And so there are differences for the embryologic reasons that I've mentioned before, between the left superior intercostal vein and the right superior intercostal vein. The right draining into the azygos, the left draining into the left brachiocephalic or nominate. Well, I think we'll actually stop here now for this podcast. Uh, next time we'll pick up on the suprapleural membrane, the thoracic aperture, the techniques of thoracotomy, which I said I'd do in this one, but it's going on a bit long, so I think we'll spread that over. Aspects of the diaphragm, and its embryologic development, a little bit about some of the anatomy of congenital diaphragmatic hernia, and a bit about the bones, the thoracic vertebrae, the ribs, the sternum. So this next podcast will be really to discuss these aspects of cleanup of the thorax that aren't 
often discussed and which should provide some practical approaches to the operative approaches in, in brief themselves. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.